He's gathering our attention. And if you're unfamiliar with that story, I invite you next week to our Lessons in Carol service where we'll walk through the whole thing, cover to cover, looking at the beauty of the promises of God and the surprising twists and turns it takes and then how everything is manifested there in Jesus Christ. And so this is the first emphasis, that the promises of God are being realized and fulfilled. The second thing we see about this witness is that it points outside of itself. You see that John here denies the fact that he is the light. Many people thought John was the Messiah. In fact, this didn't just happen during his own day. Even after his death, there was confusion about the role of John. We find this in Acts chapter 19 where there were people devoted to following John. They'd not heard of the baptism of Jesus. And so there was some strangeness floating around that world, but an authentic witness never confuses these things in his own heart and mind. He never points to himself. The focus of his ministry is not upon his own personal testimony or his own personal power on what the good things God has done for them or the great strategy he has or his oratorical gifts. That all of these things are to be used in the service of the light itself. This is what a witness does is it reflects and points people in another direction. This is what authentic witness is. The third piece of this authentic witness is that it highlights the purpose of Jesus, why he actually comes into the world. Later in chapter one and verse 29, we find what John says. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so not only speaking about the fulfillment that's happening in the incarnation of Jesus, but pointing to the purpose of that incarnation, that God is coming into the world to deal with the world's rejection of him by being rejected himself. And this is what the authentic witness does. It bears all of this weight and uses it to press the claims of God upon us, his creatures. We find that throughout John's gospel, this idea of witness is prevalent, that John the Baptist is simply the first in a line of many. In chapter four, we find a surprising witness, the woman at the well in Samaria. She was a sinful woman had many husbands and quite a sordid past, and yet she goes and gives witness to her community about what Jesus had done for her. In chapter five, we learn that the works of Jesus, these miracles, these acts of new creation, where lame people were walking, where people were being raised from the dead, where the blind were seeing, where God was unfolding and undoing the effects of the curse through the miracles of Jesus, that these miracles were witnesses. We also find in chapter five that the entire Old Testament is a witness, that it is bearing witness, making it obvious to us that Jesus is the light. In chapter 12, it was the crowds, the crowds who saw the great things that Jesus has done, the crowds who had experienced his grace and the renewal that he brings, they became witnesses. And then at the close of the gospel, Jesus says he's the witness and that he's sending the church then to bear witness. And friends, for us, in our darkness, we have to listen carefully to this witness that takes on a symphony, a chorus of voices that testifies to us from scripture and from people. And God is pleading and he's screaming and he's yelling and he's begging. And for us to sit in darkness, 
means that we have stuck our fingers in our ears and we have covered our eyes and that we're the only one who is to blame because we've made ourselves deaf and mute to the testimony and the witness of God that Jesus is the light of the world and so we must listen carefully to that witness. Listen carefully through this Advent season. The second thing that must happen to us is found in verses nine through 11. And there we see that we must accept a hard truth though. If you follow with me in verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now as a sophomore in college, I became involved in a a philosophy minor in which I was captivated by one particular professor who had grown up professing the Christian faith. His name was Jim Edwards. And yet then when he went through college and got into graduate school, he was going to be a preacher in the Baptist church and yet he turned away, he renounced his faith and he had become an atheist. And so he was my philosophy professor. And I was always intrigued by him because I wanted to understand just what exactly had happened to his faith. And so he would entertain me with long conversations in his, in his office between classes. And we had the opportunity to engage in an in assignment that I had for, for a seminary course. But what Jim would always say to me, he would always ask a question And he would say, if God was manifested in Jesus, why didn't he make it more obvious? And so, I mean, he was a very smart, competent, educated man. And he would boil it down to this one very simple question. And I have to say that I didn't always know how to answer him because he had a way of making very complicated things simple. But he said, if God was manifest in Jesus, why isn't it more obvious, Chuck? It should be more obvious. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say that our problem is knowledge. Knowledge is not the problem according to Jesus. I want you to turn with me over to chapter three. Because what we'll find in the Gospel of John is that these themes that are introduced in this prologue, the first 18 verses, are going to be exploding throughout the Gospel. But in chapter three, In verse 19, we have an explanation. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. According to Jesus, the problem is not what we know, the problem is what we love. We don't lack information, but there's a deformity in our affections, that that is what is wrong with the human heart, and why the light, the testimony that has been given and is abundant and sufficient, that shines in the darkness, that is ready for everyone, that is not heard and received because of the sickness and the disease of the human heart. And this is a crushing blow. Because what we're told here is not that we are unable, physically unable, to believe, but morally we are incapable of turning ourselves to receive the light that God has given in Jesus, that we don't want it, that we don't desire it, 
that we actually love the shade of darkness and prefer it. In the Colson home, we have something of this phenomena that happens around chores. When we ask our children why the trash is not taken out or why the dog has not been fed or any of the other number of lists, why the beds are not made, there's two typical responses that are based on knowledge. I didn't know you wanted me to do that. Or I forgot. Both are claiming that there was a lack of knowledge about the situation, therefore that's why the duty has not been performed. Now, as a parent with some experience at this point, I understand the game. I played it myself because I know that it's not a lack of knowledge. The rules have been clearly explained. The desires have been expressed. It's an abundant testimony that's been extended to these little ones in our household. And their delinquency is not about a lack of knowledge. The delinquency in the performing of the chore is that they were loving something else they were doing. They were having more fun playing the game. They were having more fun making the home movie. They were having more fun playing outside with friends or they were captivated by doing their homework and getting finished so they could do something else on the other side. But there was something more important, something that took priority, something that took precedence, something that they loved more than wanting to do what they were supposed to do. And that's the hard truth we have to accept about ourselves, is that the light has come, the light shines, and we prefer the darkness over the light. We embrace it, we run to it, because we ultimately cherish it more. And so it's not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of affection. And so this raises our final question though, what are we to do about that? God sends his light into the world that he might save the world. Jesus comes for salvation and yet he's rejected and ignored. What are we then to do? In verses 12 and 13, final thing we see is that God must recreate us. Verse 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so John explains for us that some did receive him, and they had the right to then become children of God, sons and daughters, reunited to the creator, the one who formed all things no longer strangers and aliens, but brought into home. But the great mystery that we encounter is how did some then receive him? If all of us had rejected him, if all of us were blind, if all of us were lost in that blindness and embraced the darkness, how do we go about receiving and accepting? And this is where John takes that hard truth and then explains what God does in grace and mercy to overcome it. And what he says is that those who received the light, that they were born not because of any ethnic heritage. Notes what he says in verse 13, who were born not of blood. That refers to ethnic heritage. And so there's no advantage there. 
There is no priority for Jew over Gentile in this kingdom that's being established in Jesus. It's not according to any advantage that you could have. And then he goes on to say that it's not according to any intellectual prowess that you might have. That people who believe the light are not smarter. Nor are they better. It's not according to any inner goodness. Any will that you can bring up from within yourself, some capacity that you have that makes you superior to someone else. It's not according to the will of the flesh. It's not even according to a choice that you autonomously made and decided, not something that you came up with on your own. But no, what John says is that we were born of God. He will explode this in chapter three and we'll see it in the weeks to come. But the darkness that is in us and our love and affection for that darkness is only overcome by the grace of God being from first to last the thing that dominates and brings about our salvation. It's an act of new creation that God graciously works in us according to his mysterious will, to open our eyes that those who are blind can see. And when we encounter this, when we understand that we believe because we've been born of God, there is no place for us to retreat. There is no place to hide. When we recognize that God grants us the very desire to believe, and he opens us to this, there is only one response for the church, and it doesn't include pride. We are not better than. We don't look down upon. In fact, we retreat from pride because we see our incapability, that we were paralyzed and lost and blind and God gave sight. It also means that we can never embrace apathy. There is no laziness when we recognize all that God has done on our behalf in sending the light into the world and then sending light into our heart that we would believe in the light of the world. There is no apathetic response because this grace compels us and controls us and constrains us. It drives us forward. And we also see there's no room for ingratitude because of what God has done from first to last, all the way back into the eternal counsels that we read about in verses one through four. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and that word was sent for the salvation of his people. And so ingratitude is not an option for those who've been awakened, for those who have been illumined, for those who've been born of God. This is what it looks like. This is what must happen to us. And then there's this one response. It's to come and see Jesus and to faithfully then follow after him in joy, in eagerness, in thanksgiving. That's what the disciple whose eyes have been opened to the light, this is the life that we then take up. And let's ask God, during this Advent season, that he would grant us further insight into that, that he would take us deeper into it, and that we would also then take up that great call of listening to his witnesses, accepting that hard truth, and knowing that we've been born of him, grace upon grace. So let's pray.
And Father, as we look this morning into deep mysteries, we are compelled to see a grace that we can't even fully understand. We acknowledge our darkness and our love for it. And yet you are the one who has illumined the dungeon in which we live and you've granted us light and brought us out of that darkness that we would see Jesus Christ. And so compel us by this grace that's greater than anything that we can imagine, by a love that we can never fully comprehend. And may we faithfully follow after you with eagerness, with gratitude, and with humility. Compel us as we seek after Jesus Christ. And we give thanks that our Lord Jesus, this light who's come into the world, is the one who intercedes for us this morning, that he sits at your right hand, and that in him you hear our prayers and our supplications. And so this morning we do pray for those in our city who are upon the margins of life, and we ask God that you would graciously provide for them their daily bread. And that as they eat daily bread, would they know the one who sustains all of life and has done everything that they would have true life. And so open their eyes and warm their hearts and may they turn unto you. We ask that you would bless our ministry partners who serve those on the margins of society. We particularly pray for Seamark Ranch and the good work they do with the orphans of our city. And we ask God that you abundantly provide for them in the year to head in their houses that serve these children. And may we gladly partner with them, recognizing the one who was rich who became poor, that we in his poverty might become rich. And Lord, we do pray as well this morning for our college campuses and our region. We're grateful for all the students that you have sent to our city. And at a time where they are searching about for light and truth, we ask God that you would illumine them in heart and mind. Use our campus ministries of Reform University Fellowship and also campus outreach and bless them as they minister to the many students on these campuses. May they, bringing the word of the gospel, bring light and life, that it would illumine all of life for these students and their lives would be changed and they'd be directed claimed for you. We particularly pray for Joe Naramore and his needs as he directs the region of campus outreach. And would you provide for Joe and his family and grant them great industry in the spread of the gospel here in North Florida. And Lord, we're also mindful this morning of the sick and those who are suffering in our community. We ask God that you would draw near, that they would know that they're not alone and that you've not forsaken them that you have sent the light of life, Jesus Christ, into the world for them. Would they be reminded of all of your promises and your, your kindness to them? And so we pray for Beverly Quine, and we pray for Branson Bishop. We pray for Norma Hughes. We pray for Viona Harima and her husband, Hector. We pray for Karen Ferguson as she continues to struggle to heal from her surgery. We pray for Kathy Kwasnick as she heals from her fall. And we pray for Bill Waldrop in anticipation of his surgery this week. Draw near, heal, restore, comfort as only you can by your spirit. And Father, finally, we pray for the children of our church. 
And we're thankful for the great stewardship that you have given us and entrusted to our care that we would point these little ones to put their hope in God. That is your commandment to us. And Lord, we ask that as we take that up diligently and seriously, that you would continue to grow the stewardship and these little ones would be directed to you, believing and trusting in Jesus, knowing that he is the light who can draw them out of darkness. And may they find their confidence in him all of their days. We particularly give thanks this morning for the birth of the Lamont baby to Yolanda and Steve. Thank you for this little one. Watch over and nurture and care for this child all of its days. May he grow to be great in your sight, to love you and serve you. We are grateful for all of your loving kindness, for light and life that are ours. Humble us beneath that light to follow more obediently after you, to lovingly serve you, knowing your tender care for us. And so we pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.